It's always a little bit with fear and trepidation that I speak to a group of guys that have just loaded up on bacon and eggs cause, uh, and pancakes. So I think we'll have a good, good time this morning. Um, I know it's always more fun to have a guest speaker. Uh, you don't have to worry about your you know, regular old pastor. But uh, consider me the guest speaker for the guest speaker. And so that, that makes it twice as good. Well, I wanted to uh, take this unique opportunity. Getting to talk to just men is, is a wonderful time because you can be a little bit more focused, a little bit more direct, a little bit more um, clear about certain issues that, that don't necessarily pertain to women. <clears throat> and so I want to look at the Apostle Peter this morning, and we're going to go to a whole bunch of texts since we're looking at him as a man. So whether you want to try and follow along or not, um, you don't really have to. I will start, though, in Luke chapter 5. That's one text we will read uh, together, so you might turn there. But I want to look at Peter. We're acquainted with his weaknesses. He often spoke before he thought. His mouth opened before his brain wired. Um, he has the distinction of being the only apostle that Jesus ever called Satan. Um, he has the distinction of denying that he knew Christ uh, out of fear for his own life. He has the distinction of being the only apostle who ever tried to correct Jesus. Um, he has gone down in history as a guy that we, we've seen in all the glory of his weaknesses. Uh, we've seen everything they've recorded for all time. For the past 2,000 years, people have been reading about the weaknesses of Peter. And so he might not be the first guy you think of of going to, to the scriptures to think of manly leadership. But I chose Peter for a specific reason, and that's because I identify with him. I really do. He was a weak, rough around the edges, foot in the mouth, mistake maker. But I would say he was a weak, rough around the edges, foot in his mouth, mistake maker who was desperate to be used by the Lord. And so that's why he's an example to me. So if the Lord can use Peter as a leader, then he can use any of us. Uh, he can use me. He can use you. I want to just start off talking about leadership in general. Leadership is not something that is optional for a man. It is necessary to be a man at some level or another. You are a leader or you will be a leader. It is the God-given role of a man in whatever situation you are in. It is your ministry to provide leadership in that situation. Now, that leadership might just come in the form of being a really good servant. It might come in the form of setting an example as a good follower. And all of you have role models you can think about of men that you saw who quietly always did the right thing. And that is leading in and of itself. Some men lead the best without ever opening their mouths because they simply do the right thing. <clears throat> Let's talk about where you're called to be a leader, just to kind of get our thoughts going here. First of all, you're called to be a leader in your own life. You're a leader of yourself. To lead yourself is it's the idea of having the discipline and the, the care and the drive to do the right things in your own life. It, ha it means having the discipline that when the alarm goes off in the morning that you get up and that you do the things you're supposed to do. You do the things you don't want to do. You can see in the life of men who are characterized by not leading themselves, you see the results of total lack of discipline, of lack of drive, lack of direction, and it boils down to lack of leadership. They can't lead even themselves. And so if they can't lead themselves, then they certainly can't lead others. You're also called, though, to be a leader in your home. 
And, you know, we, we take this for granted. Well, we say this in the church all the time. The men are the leaders in the home. I'm the head of the household and all that. Well, what does that really mean? Does that mean that you're a leader in name only? Or does it mean that you're actually proactively doing things to lead in your home? And we'll get into some detail about that this morning. I think for, for my part, my opinion is that in Christian homes, you can always boil down every problem in that home to a lack of leadership from the husband. Everything. Um, you, well, have you met my wife? She's difficult. Too bad. You're the leader. You're called to deal with that in a godly fashion. Well, have you met my kids? They're tough. Too bad. You're the leader. You're called to deal with that in a godly fashion. Well, do you know how little money we have, how difficult that is? Too bad. You're the leader. Get another job. In other words, every problem you find in a home, ultimately, I can bring it back to a husband and a father who's not leading. How about this one? You're called to be a leader in the church. And this may mean everything from carrying out a menial task with excellence and with care and with diligence, all the way up to being able to shepherd other men to walk with the Lord with effectiveness and with faithfulness. So we're all called to be leaders. All of you are interested in different areas of life. Some of you are very artistic. Others are more scientific-minded. Others are managerial. Some of you are thoughtful. Others of you are more rough and tumble. Um, Some of you eat a bowl of chili with a spoon and your finger up here uh, like this. Others of you don't bother with the spoon and you just take it in, right? So you have different interests. You have different personalities. Some of you are a little more soft. Some of you are a little bit more rough. But all of us have to be interested in leadership. That is not a topic for some men. That is a topic for all men. I would say this too, that the church of Jesus Christ has essentially followed the culture and become feminized. And we're afraid of the women because they're they're running the church there. We're seeing in the church men not taking their role as leaders and often they watch passively. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that our culture has said that manliness is something to be ashamed of, that I have to apologize for being a man, and that somehow now the culture tells us that men have to spend their whole life apologizing to women for their existence. And I'm sorry that I'm tougher than you. I'm sorry that I'm the one making the money. I'm sorry that I'm the head of the home. Oh, this is awful. We need to equal everything out. The culture is wrong. The Bible is correct. Our feminized culture has had a huge detrimental impact on men. And that is that we have no role models to follow anymore. We're reduced to some guy who makes $30 million a year throwing a little ball 60 feet as a role model. That's not a role model. A role model is a man who follows God's word, does what it says, and does so with faithfulness over the long haul of his life. And we don't have role models. And so the church has suffered from this need... Role, role models are absolutely paramount for men. And so we want to use Peter as a role model. Although all of his weaknesses are clearly outlined in Scripture, his strengths are as well. And so I want to show you seven qualities of manly leadership from the life of Peter. We're going to go through a lot of Scripture, just kind of take a broad overview. But I'll give you this list now, and then we'll go through it one by one and you'll be reminded of them. And we're going to start very esoterically, very internally, and they're going to get progressively more external and and very practical. First quality is that he knows his place before God. Second, he desires to grow in the Lord. Third, he loves the church. 
Fourth, he follows through decisively. Fifth, he makes things happen. Sixth, he plows new ground. And seventh, he's tender-hearted and tough-minded. And those two go together. So let's just go through these. And we're just being informal this morning here. First, a manly leader knows his place before God. He is humble. He, he knows who he is in relation to his God. And the only long passage I want to read this morning comes from Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> and when it's speaking of Simon, this is Peter. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, pressing in on Jesus, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Now, before you look ahead, what do you think Peter's going to do? He's gonna, is he going to say, wow, this is great. I can feed my family for weeks and weeks now. Or we have to worry about this boat sinking. We have to bail water. That was not his focus. His focus was very clearly on who he was with. Verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter had a very clear vision of who his God was compared to who he was. And it, it so bothered him, the difference between him and Christ, that he, his initial reaction was, go away from me. I can't be next to you. You're so much greater than I am. What humility. And that, that was just one illustration. I think of another one, John chapter 13. Jesus was going to demonstrate the heart of a servant. And he was going to do this by washing the feet of his disciples. And what did Peter do? He refused. He said, you will never wash my feet. Now, Jesus had a purpose. It was to give an object lesson to the disciples of service. It was also to, to give an object lesson about forgiveness. And Jesus told him, if I don't wash your feet, then you don't have any part of me. Remember what Peter said? Then wash all of me. Well, Jesus ex explained, you don't have to have all of you washed, just your feet. Now, the, the, the lesson here. Jesus was saying, if you've been completely forgiven, if you're saved, then on a daily basis, you wash your feet. You ask for forgiveness for those ways you've offended the Lord in your walk with him, but you don't wash your whole body again. But Peter was, he was disturbed at the thought of Jesus Christ washing his feet. That bothered him because he clearly knew his place in light of the Lord. In both these instances, his attitude is clear. He compared himself to Jesus Christ, found himself wanting, and found Christ perfect. And I think um, the greatest antidote to pride, the greatest way for us to stay humble, is to place yourself next to Jesus and do a comparison. It would be, go something like this. You would say, I am a sinner. Jesus is perfect. I don't know all that I need to know. Jesus knows everything. I deserved wrath and didn't receive it. Jesus did not deserve wrath and received it on my behalf. I am striving for holiness. 
Jesus is the epitome of holiness. He's the definition of holiness. I need the discipline and correction of the Lord. Jesus is the one to give the discipline and correction of the Lord. And so when you make that comparison, you begin to understand your place before the Lord. Now, what does this have to do with leadership? When you as a leader have an elevated view of yourself, you are hamstrung. You're done as a leader. Because now everybody under you starts to know that it's really all about you. Your family knows it. Your church knows it. Your work knows it. When, when you're a leader and you say the right words and do the wrong things, people know that it's really all about you. And a, a good leader is not one who is striving to be first. A good leader is one who is striving to serve others and to be humble, to be the least. And ultimately, if you have an elevated view of yourself, you become self-serving and not Christ-serving. A good leader is one who lays his life down for those that he's leading. How do you demonstrate humility? I would say this. We have to just make it our life's ambition to continually place ourselves below Christ. Continually thinking in these terms as not caring for your life as much as caring for the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. And the question that we talked about in Bible Training Institute last night with some of our guys was, how is my life demonstrating Christ's likeness right now at this moment? It's a great question to ask. Let me give you just some thoughts about demonstrating humility, about knowing your place before the Lord. The first one, guys, we all have to do this, is watch your tongue. A sharp reply is the result of pride every single time. Now, we all know as men that there are times when strength of conviction is needed, that somebody has to stand up and say the hard thing. Sometimes you have to say the hard thing to yourself in the mirror. Sometimes you have to say the hard thing to your wife. Sometimes you have to say it to your kids, to coworkers. But I think we all know the difference in the moment, at the moment, between a prideful response and a strong uh, response of conviction. There is a difference. And people know the difference. Here's another way to demonstrate humility is be man enough to keep your mouth shut when you know it will result in sin if you open it. I love this. Proverbs 17, 28, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. I actually saw this verse lived out recently. I was in a meeting with men much, much greater than myself with much, much more knowledge and we were uh, talking about various issues and I knew the best thing I could do is just keep my mouth shut. And I literally didn't say a word through this whole meeting. And after, after the meeting, a few minutes later, <clears throat> we're, um, a couple of us were in the restroom and one of the guys said to me, you know, I really appreciated your input. It had a lot of, uh, a lot of wisdom. Like, I didn't say a thing. And I thought about Proverbs seventeen twenty eight. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. I thought, wow, that really works. So <laughs> be man enough to keep your mouth shut. That, that takes self-control. It takes leadership. A leader doesn't say the first thing that comes to his mind. A leader measures his words carefully. And then the third way to know your place before God is keep your opinion of yourself in check. There's a balance here. You have to evaluate your strengths. You have to know what you're good at in order to lead. And I think, it's a, I think it's a good thing. Don't spend your whole life working on your weaknesses. Spend your life uh, capitalizing your strengths. But keep your opinion of yourself in check. If we're reminded of this one thing, it might help us. That whatever capabilities the Lord has given you at any time, he could take that away completely. That he could um, make you much less capable 
I think about the um, Harrison Ford movie regarding Henry, about this uh, attorney who's just uh, all full of himself, very smart, very bright, and then he's the victim of a gunshot wound. And now he's reduced to basically being a little kid, and everybody likes him a lot better. But um, we keep our opinion of ourselves in check. We're man enough to keep our mouth shut, and we watch our tongues. So the first way that Peter demonstrates manly leadership is he knows his place before the Lord. Here's another way. Peter desires to grow in the Lord. He desired to grow in the Lord. He was inquisitive. He was continually asking questions. You ever been around a little kid who just says, why is the sky blue? Why is water green? Why is water wet? Why is the floor hard? Why why do I have two feet? And you just like, wow, you really, you're just going to ruin my life like this. And, And Peter was the same way. He was this way with Jesus. He was like a puppy just going all over the place. Matthew 15, Jesus said, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. He was curious. In Luke 12, Jesus told the parable of a man who went away to a wedding feast, that his servants have to be ready for his arrival. And Peter said, Lord, are you telling the parable for us or for everybody? He's inquisitive. The night that Jesus was going to be betrayed, he told the disciples in John 13, he said, where I'm going, you cannot come. He was speaking of going up to heaven. And Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, and where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And those are just a few examples. Peter was continually asking questions. And we think that's kind of annoying, but I think it shows something that he was curious. He always wanted to know. He wanted to know what was in the mind of the Lord. He wanted to know why something was being taught. And I think of Psalm 105.4 that says, Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. A manly leader is continually seeking after God. You're seeking to know God better. That is, your, that is your whole life's goal. What do you want to be doing when you are resting in a nursing home waiting to go home? Listen to sermons. Listen to great songs about our faith. Do the things that continue to grow you in the Lord so that when you go to heaven, it's not a surprise and a shock all that you begin learning about the Lord. To know God better, we want to be enriched in our understanding of the Lord and his word. Um, it, It takes discipline to do this. It takes discipline to decide, I am going to grow in Christ. And sometimes you have to look around and say, nobody's making me do this. I've got to do it. I'm going to make this happen. Growing mature in the Lord is not something that accidentally happens to you. I had somebody tell me once, uh, a man told me, he said, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of envious of how you just seem to grow in the Lord. And I asked him very directly, very pointedly, what are you going to do about it in your life? What do you intend to do to change? And he just kept, he was like a, like a jelly donut. He just kept squishing out all over the place. I tried to nail him down. Well, this and that, excuse, excuse. So when are you going to do it? Nobody's going to do it for you. Men who are passive in their own spiritual growth tend to have families who are passive in their spiritual growth. And this is a tough thing for us to swallow, but I'll say this. Generally speaking, your wife will only attain to the level of maturity in Christ that you do. 
and you have to stay ahead of her and you have to set the example. I've seen men who don't set an example with their wife. They're not making sure their children are taught the word of God. They're not reading their Bible in the home or making sure it's read um, to their children. Um, it's always discouraging to me to see men with young children and I find out that they're not even, they're not reading the Bible to their kids. Really, what are you doing? Who do you think is going to do this? Who do you think is going to lead them to Christ? And then invariably, the men who are lazy at home are also too lazy to get their kids at least to Sunday school to have them learn there. And you see this, this pervasive laziness where I'm not growing in the Lord and therefore I'm going to harm those under my charge by making sure they're not growing in the Lord either. So we have a responsibility. Jesus wasn't kidding when we're told through him, through the word of um, Ephesians chapter five, that we're to wash our wives in the word. That's our responsibility. The guy who's not disciplined to do this is not seeking the Lord and he's going to harm others as well. What was Peter's wish for you as men? Second Peter 1, 2, he said, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. That was his wish. You know what the last written words of Peter were? Second Peter three eighteen. these are his last words. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This was one curious man telling the rest of us to be curious, to know the Lord and to grow in him as well. A manly leader knows his place before God. He desires to grow in the Lord. Third, a manly leader loves the church. He loves the church. Now, Peter was a, he was a tough guy. He's a big, tough fisherman. He cut the ears off people. He stood up to authorities for the sake of Christ. He, I mean, he's the only thing, guy I know of who rebuked somebody so hard they actually died, Ananias and Sapphira, falling over dead. But listen to Mr. Tough Guy here. If you ask him about the church, Second Peter 3, he refers to the church as the beloved and to, his, to the Apostle Paul as our beloved brother. Mr. Tough Guy, when you talk to him about the church, as you read First and Second Peter, if you could picture that as a conversation, his view of the church was a tender one. It was, there was a softness, there was a joy, there was a love. I have heard the smoke blown by plenty of men who say, oh yeah, I love the church. I love the church. This is in a general sense. You know when I hear that phrase the most often? Right before they say the word, but and then tell me something they're perceiving to do that's going to harm the church because they're selfish or they think they know better or they have this much knowledge and they think that the guys who have this much knowledge don't know anything. The general sense of, oh, I love the church is baloney. It's blowing smoke. It's not real. I'm not talking about a generalized love for the church. I can only say the word baloney when I'm with guys. So that's, that's great. I'm not talking about a generalized love for the church talking about a real love that genuinely looks at the members of the body of Christ with affection, with joy, with a, a sense of, of responsibility that I need to be a brother to these. For the mature, for the immature, we love them both. For the solid, for the shaky, we love them both. For those who inspire our hearts and those who try our patience, we love them both. Generally speaking, a man who says he loves the church 
but he doesn't really will become a harm and a detriment to the church. I have a good friend um, who is pastoring in a very, very difficult situation, and he had an elder who essentially said, I'm taking over the church. And he tried to basically blow by the bylaws, blow by the doctrinal statement, and do a big takeover. And so they had a meeting that was just yesterday, and I've been talking this, to this guy daily, praying with him. He's just just upset and, and, and in difficult and great turmoil because a guy who's trying to just pull the rug out from under a whole ministry. And so I asked him, well, how'd the meeting go? And he said, well, this is what I did. I asked this elder, do you love the church? And he said, yes, I love the church. That's why I'm, I've got to do all this. And he proceeded to enumerate all the ways it was not loving for him to do these things. And by God's grace, this man repented and in tears said, I have not loved the church. But the lesson for me was very, very clear. Men who say they love the church, but they don't, you don't just assume a neutral position. There's no such thing as neutral as a man. Either you're helping the church or you're harming. You're not in between. And even a man who comes and just sits in the back and doesn't do anything, he's not involved, he's not a part of things, that's not neutral. That is harmful because you're setting an example that it's okay to be a man and sit back and do nothing. And there are people watching you. So we love the church. Why is this a necessary component of manly leadership? Well, first of all, the manliest leader I know loves the church, and that is Jesus Christ. He loves his church. Another pretty manly leader is the Apostle Paul. He's a man's man. He endured shipwrecks, snake bites, beatings, imprisonment for the sake of Christ, and and he loved the church. So what does it mean to love the church? I, I think your love for the church in great part will order your life as a leader. Let me explain what that means. It means you order your life around you and your family regularly worshiping with the body of Christ. It means you order your life around the use of spiritual gifts in the church. I love it when people, I, I want to get them in ministry and I love it when guys say, um, I don't have time. Okay, how many hours in the day do you have? 24, who do they belong to? Christ, I said, you got 24 hours a day as far as I'm concerned because they're not yours and you have the same number I do. If a woman tells me I don't have time to do ministry because I'm taking care of my husband and being faithful at home with my kids, fine, no problem. When the man says it, no. No excuse. Well, I need my eight and a half hours of sleep. Oh, come on, suck it up. You can sleep when you die. Sleep a little less. To love the church means you're available to serve Christ. It means that you are available to sacrificially row the boat with the rest of us. That's what manly leadership is. It means you're developing spiritually and you're benefiting the church with this. There are guys who hold back and there are those who stay on the sidelines and they quietly attend and I understand that God made different people differently. Um, Some guys are upfront kind of guys, others aren't. I'm not talking about the pomposity of your personality. I'm talking about your willingness to to get in the boat and grab an oar and go. Um, These guys who don't assert themselves in the church, assert themselves in relationship and in service, they look humble but I'll tell you, ultimately, it's a form of selfishness. Proverbs 18.1 says this, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. That there is an unwillingness to get in the boat in a row and to do the things that need to be done. I like to boil things down if I can. If you want to love the church, let me give you three steps and it's in six words. You ready for this? Be here, do something, love someone. You ready? Be here, do something, love someone. 
be involved in the church. If you're a more quiet kind of a guy, then you don't have to be up front. Stand by the door and look for somebody else who's quiet and go over and say, how are you doing? May I pray for you and minister to them. Be here, do something, love someone. A manly leader knows his place before God. He desires to grow in the Lord. He loves the church. Fourth, and now we're going to get a little bit more into the nuts and bolts here. He follows through decisively. He follows through decisively. In other words, he doesn't do things halfway. This, I love Peter. I relate to him because he's a guy who never did things halfway. Mark 10, 28, Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Say what you want about Peter, but he left his whole life behind to follow Christ. Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And this goes down in history as the great confession of the Messiahship and the deity of Christ by Peter, who dared to open his mouth in a culture that thought Jesus was nuts. And Peter went out on a limb. I love this one from John 21. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. This is after the resurrection. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now, Peter's wheels, they might not be fast, but they're starting to turn. You can hear the rest. Something's going on here. I recognize this. (laughs) The disciple whom Jesus loved, this is John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment. He was stripped for work. You don't want to swim to the Lord without your clothes on. And he threw himself into the sea to go swim to Christ. When Peter decided decided to do something, he did it. He went for it. I think this is a massively missing component in leadership today. For men, men in the church, there's a hesitancy. We're taught now to test the waters first. We're taught to just make sure we're going to get all the data. We're going to really, really check and see that everything is in place. We have men who don't follow through with what they're say they, they say they're going to do. Men who wimp out, who don't keep commitments. Um, Your word, when you open your mouth and say, I will do something, Jesus said, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Be a man who is is somebody you can count on. Let me give you a few examples here. If you have children and you say to one of them, stop doing so-and-so, such-and-such, our culture today says that we don't follow through, that we don't continue to pursue that. Let me tell you what a manly leader does. A manly leader is going to personally go to the mat with that kid to make sure they're going to do exactly what you said. Doesn't matter what it takes. Um, Here's another example. You see something in your family that needs to be adjusted, needs to be changed. You don't like what you see. As the head of the home, you're responsible. This is you. If something is happening, you want to be changed. You have to be decisive about making this happen. You're the one who needs to not lack hesitancy. You know, guys complain to me, yeah, I don't like stuff that's going on in my family. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? Another example, men running meetings. Look, we, our whole life is filled with gathering together in groups and doing things where somebody has to take charge. Do you ever, in, in school, you remember doing those projects where you were paired together with a group and they always seem to put 
a, a leader with a bunch of followers and the leader got the same grade that the followers did. I always hated that. But somebody has to take charge and sometimes you're the guy. If you're in meetings, whether at work or in ministry, I just, I see this all the time. A lot of talking happens and you spend hours together really basically doing nothing and no one says, what are we going to do? Who's going to do it? When's it going to get it done? And how are we going to hold people accountable to make sure it happens? That's what leadership is. It takes leadership. It takes decisiveness. The Apostle Paul put it this way, Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. To do things in the name of the Lord Jesus, it means to do things in a way that would be pleasing to him. And that means to be decisive. That means to do what you do with, with a sense of going for it. Whatever you do, you do with excellence. You don't do it with mediocrity. This is not pleasing to the Lord. Don't go halfway. Never do something kind of good. Frankly, I'd rather, I'd rather say I can't do something. I cannot fulfill this obligation rather than do it badly. We ought to set an example of excellence for us because ultimately as a leader, you're setting the bar. You know what the scariest thing I've ever heard about being in ministry is that your church will attain to the level of love and maturity in Christ that you do. That scares me to death. That keeps me in the word, keeps me in prayer, keeps me begging God, God, I'm not capable of that. And so we do what we do with excellence. We be decisive. A couple of years ago when I went through um, Grace Advance Academy at the Master Seminary, the Chairman of the Elder Board at Grace Community Church, um, who's an accountant, runs a big accounting company, really very wise and godly man. But he was one of our guest speakers. And somebody asked him the question, why do so many people follow John MacArthur? And I I expected him to say, well, he's a great preacher and theologian and, and people love him and that sort of thing. He answered immediately. He said, because he doesn't second guess himself. He makes a decision and he moves forward with it. That's why people follow they appreciate that. I'd rather make a bad decision decisively based on the best information I have than to not make a decision at all. Um, that's, what, that's what gets people hurt. That's what gets people uh, in a place of mediocrity in their life. This was a quality that God built into Peter, and certainly there were a lot of rough edges to work out of it. But Peter led the way, and he was decisive in doing this. Now, I want to build on this theme First, the manly leader knows his place before God, desires to grow in the Lord, loves the church, follows through decisively. Let's build on that a little bit. He makes things happen. He makes things happen. This is similar, but more specific. Peter's listed first in all the lists of the apostles. On Pentecost, do you think that when this crowd of thousands of people gathered, that he he whispered to James and John, hey guys, do you think we ought to say something? Think maybe, look at all these people. What are we going to do? I I better think about this. Let's go back in the upper room. Let's pray a little. Find out what's going on. No. Acts 2.14, but Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. He had a crowd in his hand because he said, listen to what I'm about to say. It's the most important thing you'll ever hear. He made things happen. I would say this, don't always be the guy waiting for someone else to take the lead. Sometimes you have to look around and go, it's me, it's me. I remember the profound thought when my dad was killed in a car accident in 2005 of 
I don't have a dad on this earth praying for me anymore. I'm next in line. There's a profundity to saying, no one else is going to take the lead. I'm going to do it. And that's what being a man is. If there are things happening in your life you don't like, then what do you do? Make things happen. You ask yourself two questions. Ready for this? Question number one, is this thing that's happening completely out of my control? If it truly is out of my control, then prayer and the peace of the Lord is your answer. But if it is in your control, if there's something you can do, then you get to the second question, what can I do to make something happen with God's help and why am I not doing it? What can I do? When am I gonna start? Great men are men who make things happen. And I've noticed something too. You've noticed this too. Men who make things happen tend to do it across the board. They do it in their families. They do it at their job. They do it in the church. They're men who lead. And, and you might say, well, that's just, you know, there are a few guys uniquely gifted in leadership. And I would agree with that to a certain degree. But I think you are uniquely gifted as leaders by virtue of the fact that God made you a man. You are gifted as a leader. So what do you do to make things happen? Here's four simple steps that are all done prayerfully. You ready for this? We keep things simple because we are guys after all. Number one, make a plan. Number two, execute the plan. Number three, make adjustments to the plan. Number four, execute the adjustments to the plan. One more time. Number one, make a plan. Number two, execute the plan. Pull the trigger. That's what it takes. Pull the trigger. Three, make adjustments to the plan. And four, execute the adjustments to the plan. It's that simple. I, I meet with a group of guys at the seminary in a discipleship lab. And uh, last week we were talking about how to run a meeting effectively. How to get a group of people to a point where they're actually going to do something rather than keep talking about it. And there were a couple of guys there. I got them to the point where we were talking about we were using a, a given situation in the church of starting a building program. And so we talked through this uh, fake scenario here and I use this phrase that you have to be the guy ultimately that says, I think we're in agreement. It's time to pull the trigger. It's time to pull that and let the bullet go. And a couple of guys said, don't you think that you ought to take a little more prayer and time? And I asked the question, well, for how long? And they didn't have an answer. I'll tell you what the answer was. They didn't want to pull the trigger. They were scared to make things happen. And so I tried to explain to them that you have to be the guy to make things happen. You've, you mean make it happen in your family, make it happen in your life, make it f- happen in the ministry. If you have families, do you ever meet with your family? Do you ever meet with them to talk about the family's functioning or what's going on in the family to lead the way? Or do you just let your wife do all the leading and you say, well, I've delegated everything to her. Baloney. You're the commander in chief. You need to be there. You need to be uh, part of what's going on. Uh, in my family, we meet about our schedules. We meet about duties around the house. We meet about the goals that we have uh, in our family. We meet about our spiritual progress. Uh, I meet regularly with my wife to talk about the business of being married, the business of having a family. Uh, we do everything from planning date nights to planning ministry events to uh, resolving whatever unresolved issues may have cropped up between us. We meet, we lead together. Part of the joy and delight of being a man is the God-given ability to make things happen. I mean, that's the fun of being a guy. Why do you think guys like to go chop down a tree, cut it into little boards and make something out of it? 
That's the fun of being a man. And we don't always transfer that into other areas of life. A manly leader knows his place before God. He desires to grow in the Lord. He loves the church. He follows through decisively. He makes things happen. Now, sixth, I want to take this even to a different level. And that is he plows new ground. He plows new ground. He does new things. The disciples are in a boat. And they see Jesus walking on the water. They're not certain it's him. Matthew 14, 28, Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And we always get all over Peter for getting on the water and sinking. Well, he was a man who lacked faith. Well, the other 11 were just sitting in the boat. Who walks on water? Peter was a guy who had never seen it happen until that moment. And his first thought was, if he can do it, I can do it. And he got out on the water. I, I, I don't fault Peter for sinking in the waves. I give him credit for walking on the water. I mean, he actually did it. That's plowing new ground or plowing new water, I guess. It takes a man of faith. It takes a man who will trust the Lord with all your heart to do something that is brand new for you, to do what you used to think was impossible. I think there are basically two kinds of men. There are the 90% who say it can't be done. And then there's the 10% who say, yeah, it can be done. Which one are you, do you want to be? I'll tell you, I, I try to hang around men who are not discouraging to me. I like to hang around men who are can-do kind of guys, who are willing to plow new ground, who, who are men who can look at something that doesn't exist yet and see it. Look, I see it. Look, it's right there. You can see it. That's who I want to hang around because those are men who make things happen, who plow new ground. I don't want to be around guys who say, oh, we can't. Those are a dime a dozen. I want to be around guys who say, with God's help, anything can be done. And who will keep getting up when it doesn't happen. We'll keep trying. We'll keep going. A man who plows new ground is one who sees something where it doesn't yet exist. Someone who follows through decisively. Ready for this? Follows through decisively to make something happen and plow new ground. That's what we do. A guy I was talking to just dropped out of seminary. And it's very sad to me. And sometimes there's good reasons for that. But his reason was not a good one. His was just, he basically said, I just can't picture following this through all the way to the end. And I told him, well, that's your problem right there, is that you don't have enough faith to picture doing this. And he just said, it's too hard. Well, there's 1,300 guys who've gone before you who didn't think that. And I encouraged him to rethink it, that he needs to be more manly um, and to, to trust the Lord with this. A manly man says, with God's help, it can be done. You know what this means? This means taking risks, right? That is the definition of being a man. I'm not talking about throwing wisdom out the door. I am talking about uh, taking risks, though. I think we've been namby-pambied into living lives spent in the pursuit of minimizing risk. We just want to minimize everything, make everything as predictable as possible. But could I say this? I think all great things that ever happened in your life always have some risk. There's always an element of risk to it. And the beauty of it is if you have faith in the Lord, if you love the Lord Jesus, what's the worst that can happen? Well, you can die. And what happens then? To live as Christ, to die as gain. So is there any real live risk? No, you're, you're in a little protected bubble that the worst thing that can happen is you get your head cut off. Who cares? I'm home. So there's no real risk. But risk is inherent in manhood. Churches that die... 
I always guarantee you that one of the one of the elements of the death of that church was a general culture of not being willing to take risks, not being willing to, you know, we haven't ever really had anybody here who preaches the word verse by verse. Maybe we ought to get a guy here who actually does that. That's a risk. Maybe we ought to actually invite the lost. Maybe we ought to actually reach out somehow. Churches who quit taking risks quit growing and they quit doing things effectively for the Lord. A very, very small example, we took a risk in having our church celebration banquet and I had a few uh, worried souls who said, we've never done this before. Why are we doing this? And I just said, well, just wait and see. And it could have completely flopped. I mean, other than the fact that the food was fantastic, there could have been seven people there with all those, you know, 17 tables. And well, I guess we could put one at every other table and make it look big. Nothing good happens when you try to minimize risk at all costs. Nothing good happens. I think that the attitude of minimizing risk continually, frankly, is a symptom of a small faith in a smaller God. Men need to be men of big faith in a big God. Don't be the guy who automatically says it can't be done. You be the guy who says, I think we can do this. You get on your knees, you trust the Lord, and you ask him, if it is your will, give me the courage to plow new ground in my life, to plow new ground in my family's life, to plow new ground in the areas you've given me to do what I haven't done before. I don't need to give you examples. I don't need to give you applications because right now, every one of you know things in your life, the new ground that needs to be plowed. You just have to do it. A manly leader knows his place before God. He desires to grow in the Lord. He loves the church. He follows through decisively. He makes things happen. He plows new ground. And we'll kind of close up with this. He's tender-hearted and tough-minded. He's tender-hearted and tough-minded. When Peter denied Jesus, he really, he, he betrayed him. What was, what was his response? He went out and he wept bitterly. Matthew 26, he was tender to his own sin. Over the years, he became very patient with the sin of others. He was a tender-hearted man, but he was tough-minded. What's the difference between Peter and Judas? They both betrayed Christ. Judas felt sorry for himself. The remorse he felt was not remorse that he had sinned against God. It was remorse that things didn't go the way that he wanted them to go. And what did he do? He committed suicide. Peter wept bitterly asked for forgiveness, and got up. That was the difference. He was determined to move forward. I would say that for Peter, every time he failed, that just motivated him all the more to succeed. That motivated him to get up. Be the kind of guy that every, if you get knocked down for the 10th time, you're more motivated to get up for number 11. And you're just, bring it on. I, I've, I've gone down 10 times. One more won't make a difference. You're just going to keep getting up. You're tough-minded, In the power of the Spirit of God, you can make a determination to do that which must be done, to do the hard thing, to take the more difficult road. I I don't want to hang around guys who want everything to be easy all the time. That's not what manliness is. Uh, Sometimes I I wish we lived in a different culture where to make something happen, you had to go out and hitch up the horses. You had to go out and literally plow the ground. You had to do something. And now we live in an insulated life where you can sort of insulate yourself and live your whole life indoors and not really do anything hard. I think of one runner a few years ago who was running the marathon and he was injured and he kept on going and he was interviewed a few days later and the question asked him was, why did you keep going? And he answered, I just decided I wouldn't stop. 
It was that simple. I'm just going to keep going. There, there is no, uh, there's no option. I was tough-minded. We have to find a balance here, guys. I think a, a man who is hard, who is difficult, who is harsh, who makes people around him fearful, who makes his wife afraid, who makes his kids afraid, he thinks he's tough. That's not manliness, that's pride. And so we're tender-hearted with those who need tenderness. We're patient with those who are, who are sinning against us. We're, we keep our mouth closed rather than saying, oh yeah, every time something comes to our brain. We're tender-hearted. We love each other. And yet at the same time, you turn right around and you can be tough-minded. I think one of my favorite examples of a tender-hearted and tough-minded guy is King David. I mean, he writes these incredible songs that we have in Psalms that are, that are, that are pure and they're tender, they're filled with emotion, they're filled with, with feeling, and yet David would go out in battle and hack guys to death. I think of the prophet Samuel, who was tender to the Lord, and even from a small age as a little boy was, was tender to the things of God and loved the Lord and offered sacrifices to the Lord and worshiped the Lord. And yet when King Saul disobediently did not kill uh, King Agur, then Samuel came and, quote, hacked him to death. That's a man. I mean, what prophet gets to do that? You know, tender-hearted, tough-minded, in other words, in one moment, you might be holding your wife's hand, listening to her and helping her cry and wiping her tears. And the next moment, you have to deal with a disciplined situation with a kid. And you say, it's me and you, and I'm going to win. And then you go back, now, honey, where were we? You're both. That's what leadership is. It is to be tender when you need to be and to be tough when you need to be. Well, I want to just close with this verse you're all familiar with. 1 Corinthians sixteen thirteen. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. That's what we're to do. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for these men here. Every one of them represents the responsibility for themselves. They represent the responsibility uh, for others at, at one level or another, either now or in the future. I pray, Lord, that they would pursue manly leadership. They would pursue being men who, who tenderly fall on their face, before holy God, begging for mercy and help and strength. But then when they stand in your strength, Lord, that they will do the hard things, that they will make things happen, that they will plow new ground, that they will see things where they have yet to exist, that they will be men of vision for their own lives, men of vision for their families, men who dare to who, to disciple their wives, dare to uh, hope and pray the best for their children to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, who dare to believe that something great can happen in whatever ministry they find themselves. Lord, I pray for these men here. God, let them just relish the life you have given them to live out the mandate to lead as men. And that's where we're the most satisfied as well. It's where we're, we have the most joy. And that's when, when we will stand up and do the hard thing and be able to look back on our life and say, I did the things that needed to be done and I did the things that others were not willing to do. And that's a good legacy to leave, Lord. And it also is pleasing to you. Lord, you certainly were a man who led. You did that which had never been done before. Our Lord Jesus stepped out of eternity into the life of a man and he became even a baby 
that had never been done. He went to the cross to save us from our sins. That had certainly never been done. And he dared to lead a host of humanity into heavenly eternal reward. That had never been done. And so we follow the ultimate example, not Peter, but our Lord Jesus Christ. Give us the strength, the courage to lead as our Lord and Savior has done that we might be honoring to him. It's in his name we pray and thank you. Amen.